1: Well, happy holidays to my loyal
0: Savage Nation podcast listeners with another great year winding down. And it's been a really great year for the Savage Nation podcast. We're in the top 0.3% of American podcasts. I want to take a moment to thank you for continuing to listen to the Michael Savage podcast. And by doing so, putting up a fight for our borders, language and culture. Now, look, More crazy times are sure to come, and they're ahead of us. This is not the end of the road for us. It's only the beginning. And we have to stay vigilant and confident that truth will prevail, and we will overcome the agenda of the fascistic left-wing demagogues. And I, Michael Savage, hope to continue to speak my truth in hopes to make this country a better place for generations to come. As long as God gives me the energy, the power, and the health, I will continue to do what I've been doing For well over 27 years which is speaking truth to power and we need you to keep listening to the podcast and telling others about the podcast and more importantly I know you say well why should I do it you've got to listen to the ads and try to buy some of these products it's the only lifeblood that we have but there's more if you would like full access to all I have to offer you from past and present radio shows podcasts and places that i've never even broadcast from journals unpublished manuscripts i need you all to subscribe and become members of savage premium and there you will find all of my podcasts ad free that's right ad free now i'm thankful for all of my advertisers that stand by this show without them there would be no show but this show ultimately is for the listener and so not only Would you get the ad-free podcasts available 24-7 as a member, but you will also receive access to premium content that is not available anywhere else. Now, here's some examples of what you'll receive that no one else will. Savage, Savage's leftist hit piece. Jackie Mason visits the Savage Nation. Where have all the men gone? Savage and Hollywood idiots. Immigrant barbarians at the gate. Savage reads from his best-selling novel, Countdown to Mecca. How was the world created? an insight from Jewish mysticism, the diet of a young savage, special replay Savage 25th radio anniversary show, and how ultra-tolerance is killing America. These are some of the special pieces that only members have gotten. So people, start the new year off right by being the best citizen for you, your family in this nation, and the savage nation, and I will continue to guide you on this path as I have always tried to do. All you've got to do is go to glow.fm slash savage premium that's glow.fm slash savage premium and for just three ninety nine dollars a month you'll have access to some of the past and all of the present and the future that the savage nation has to offer go to glow.fm slash savage premium thank you all for listening to the savage nation podcast tell your friends about it and i hope to see you all next year God bless America and have a happy, happy, healthy new year. Welcome to the Savage Nation podcast. Well, it's the end of the year and most people are not even in business, the radio business. Everyone's away. People don't do anything in this week. But I went into my golden oldies. People have told me that my archives are worth millions of dollars. But for you, my listeners, I have something very special for you. The team went through the archives and we pulled out some of the most Remarkable interviews on some of the most interesting topics throughout the years that we ran on the savage nation We're gonna start off with an interview. I did with Michio Kaku Which is an interview about parallel dimensions the possibility of parallel dimensions and string theory. I know you say what the hell is that? You're not gonna believe it So we're talking about parallel universes It came up the other day in the original author of the article Peter Gorham in the New York Times article said it was unfortunate tabloid journalism. But, you know, there is research in the world of physics on the issue of parallel dimensions, incidentally, and it's not implausible. And especially for those of you who are, have been reading science fiction for many years, it is possible, I think. I'm not a theoretical physicist, but we have one of the world's best joining us right now on the program. You, I mean, he's a household name. You've seen him, you've heard him, uh, Michio Kaku. Theoretical physicist at uh, City College of New York, my alma mater in my undergraduate years, best-selling author, co-founder of string field theory, and such. And uh, his books include many, many bestsellers that you may have read. And he joins us now on the Savage Nation to talk about parallel dimensions. Doctor Kaku, welcome to the Savage Nation. Thank you so much for being with us.
2: Yeah, glad to be on the show. in, in three dimensions. <laughs>
0: Well, look, you're the real McCoy, and we're not physicists. Some of us can read science, but theoretical physics is another world. Is there any possibility there could be a parallel universe or universes, doctor?
2: Well, believe it or not, this is what I do professionally. And if you watch the, uh, the Big Bang Theory, you know that Sheldon works on string theory. And I'm one of the early pioneers in string theory. I'm the founder of string field theory, one of the main branches of string theory. And string theory says that we live in maybe 10, maybe 11-dimensional hyperspace. And that parallel universes, we're talking about a multiverse of parallel universes, not just one or two, but a landscape of parallel universes. So we could be having this very same conversation in another parallel universe, except there are three of us or four of us online instead of just two. Oh God, Isn't it enough that
0: it's just the two of us? So what, is, what does that do for our consciousness, Dr. Kaku? What does it do for our consciousness? Are we now to believe that we're that we're living somewhere else at the same time?
2: Well, you know, our senses tell us that we can go forward, backward, left, right, up, down, and three dimensions is all there is. Maybe a fourth if you include time. But we think that at the beginning of the universe, when the universe was created, the universe existed in perhaps 11-dimensional hyperspace. And that our universe is a bubble. A bubble is expanding. We live on the skin of the bubble. And that's called the Big Bang But the new theory says that there are other bubbles out there creating a bubble bath. A bubble bath of universes called the the multiverse. And yes, it means that universes could be formed even as we speak. Even as we speak, somewhere in the cosmos, a big bang has taken place, and a baby universe has just gotten off the ground. In fact, Stephen Hawking, my, my colleague, when he was alive, he talked about uh, baby universes, baby universes being born somewhere in the cosmos, uh, so far away that we can't measure it directly. But that, that's what the theory says. The theory says there should be other universes out there. And at the electron level, at the subatomic level, electrons can be two places at the same time. In fact, this is the famous Schrodinger cat problem, that if you put a cat in a box and you're not allowed to open the box, The cat could be dead and alive simultaneously and it's not until you open the box that you really know the cat is dead or alive which means that believe it or not that people who have died in our universe could be alive in another parallel universe now that doesn't mean we can talk to them that doesn't mean you're going to talk to elvis presley that doesn't mean you can move between universes of course that's extremely hard but it does mean that, yes, physics entertains the possibility that there could be a, a multiverse, a landscape. So wait, so, so wait, Dr.
0: Kaku, so let's tie religion in for a minute. Everyone thinks about their own mortality, some on a more regular basis than others. I've been obsessed with this since I'm five years old. Uh, some religions tell us there's an afterlife. Would your theory tend to support the concept that there could be a so-called afterlife?
2: Well, it supports the idea that in our universe, the universe that you can see and touch, that when you die, unfortunately, your atoms will decay, and you will then drift into dust, as the Bible says, from dust to dust, ashes to ashes. But as you move, your, your body splits into parallel universes. These are called quantum universes, and we measure this with electrons all the time. That's why we have lasers. That's why we have the Internet. That's why we have this phone conversation. The entire electronic structure of the Internet is based on parallel universes. So it means that your carbon copies of your body could be peeling off and creating other copies of you. And in those universes, perhaps you do survive. Perhaps you do live on much longer than you do in our universe. But as far as our universe is concerned, the universe that you see when you look in a mirror... When you die, perhaps your, your atoms will disintegrate and you will turn to dust. Sorry about that.
0: No, no. I, I, look, I have a friend who's a very, well, let's say, well-educated medical doctor, a Ph.D., and a uh, neuropsychiatrist, and he says, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in an afterlife. He said, when the, when the electricity stops in your brain, you're dead. He, would you argue that that's not necessarily true?
2: Well, I would argue that in our universe, the universe that you can see and touch, that you see in a mirror, that when you die, chances are your your atoms will disintegrate and you'll turn to dust, okay? But like I said, you exist in multiple states. When you look in the mirror, you're taking an average, an average over thousands of different universes, and in some of the universes, you decided to go to school, you decided to marry this person, you decided to change careers. And in these other parallel universes, you can survive, perhaps, even if you are dying in this universe. So it means that people you know and love that have died in our universe are not necessarily die- dead in other universes. Now, the trick is, and there's always a catch, the trick is to go between universes and requires a technology far beyond anything that we can muster with our puny internet and our puny atomic bombs.
0: But wait, but, but, but Dr. Kaku, this is fascinating to me. So it means that our, quote, schizophrenics, some of whom are seriously uh, ill, hospitalized, medicated, do you think it's possible that some of these, quote, schizophrenics are actually existing or seeing these other dimensions?
2: Well, like I said, we, we no longer vibrate in unison with Elvis Presley. So there is a universe <laughs> where Elvis Presley is still alive. That universe has decohered from our universe. We no longer vibrate. Now think of a radio. A radio tunes into one frequency, but it has the probability of tuning into any frequency you want. The difference is that you are now tuned to one frequency, but not the other frequencies. So in other words, at the beginning of time, all these universes could have been one, but we have since peeled off the timeline. The timeline has split, which means that it's very difficult to go between timelines. That, of course, would require technology far beyond anything that we can muster. But the equations of quantum theory says that electrons do this all the time. That's why we have the Internet. That's why we have lasers. But we consist of trillions of electrons, and we average over trillions of electrons, and that's why we are no longer vibrating in unison with Elvis Presley.
0: uh, Dr. Kaku, you're a theoretical physicist, you're a world-famous author, you're the co-founder of String Field Theory, a branch of uh, String Theory. Um, When you were a boy, if you don't mind, when you were a boy, you must have been a very deep thinker, you must have thought about the meaning of life and death, is that how you wound up in theoretical physics, or what drove you into that field?
2: Well, you know, my, uh, I was brought up in the press as a Presbyterian, but my parents were Buddhists. And in Buddhism, there is no Big Bang, there's no God, there's no beginning or end. In the Presbyterian Church, there is a beginning. So there's two diametrically opposed points of view. But with the multiverse idea, we can now combine these two points of view into one. You see, our universe had a big bang. Our universe did have a beginning, but our bubble universe coexists with other universes in a bubble bath of universes, and they're floating in nirvana, that is 11-dimensional hyperspace. And so, in other words, our universe had a big bang, had a beginning, but there are other universes that are being formed all the time, And they exist in nirvana. Nirvana is hyperspace. Nirvana is the larger arena in which these bubbles can float. And when these bubbles bump into other bubbles or peel off a baby bubble, that's called the Big Bang. That explains the origin of the universe. Our universe was created, perhaps, when two bubbles collided to create a bigger bubble, which is our universe.
0: We're speaking with uh, Dr. Michio Kaku. Uh, and it got triggered by the tabloid story the other day on parallel dimensions that are possible in, uh, in reversing time. On a pragmatic level, a practical level, Dr. Kaku, I read this morning that satellites and spacecraft malfunction as Earth's magnetic field mysteriously weakens. What do you think is causing the weakening of, the, uh, Earth's, of Earth's magnetic field?
2: Uh, First of all, the story is absolutely true. Uh, The magnetic field of the Earth does wander. It wanders several miles every day, in fact. And uh, it also is decreasing in intensity. We can actually compare it using the uh, uh, measurement of magnetism centuries ago by the ancient mariners. Hmm. We know that it's weakening and it's wandering. And um, there could be a flip at a certain point. Now, this is not the geologic pole of the Earth. If that were to flip, we'd be flinging into outer space and mm. doomsday. We're talking about the magnetic poles shifting. Now, we know that when you go to Hawaii and you dig into the lava flows, a lava, when it solidifies, seals in the direction of the North Pole. Thereby, simply digging into the lava of Hawaii, you can actually see layer by layer the flipping, the flipping of the direction of the North Pole. So it could be potentially dangerous in the sense that without a magnetic field, we're going to be hit with cosmic rays, solar flares from the sun, but it probably won't happen for a few more centuries.
0: Oh, thank God. It's
2: something that uh, we are looking at very seriously, the magnetic field of the Earth is shifting, it's moving, and it's getting weaker. And at, at some point, it will go to zero, in which case cosmic rays will come down to the Earth and, um, you know, this mm. may have to, you know, go underground.
0: I may have to move to another dimension where it's safer. <laughs> Dr. Doctor Kaku, um, religion. Is religion completely fraudulent in your mind? Is there? No, let's put it another way. Is it possible, given your your thinking, your research, your ability to see into dimensions we can't see, those of us who are not theoretical physicists, because you you folks do live in another world, in your world, could a God exist?
2: Well, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas, several hundred years ago, had five proofs of the existence of God, uh, two of which are seriously being looked at even today. The teleological proof of the existence of God is that you have to have a first designer. Every time you see something, you assume that it's designed, but who designed the designer? The ultimate designer is God, said St. Thomas Aquinas today we think that perhaps evolution can give us the diversity of life however the cosmological proof of the existence of god still stands today after hundreds of years of challenges and that's the cosmological proof that everything had to have something to set it into motion but what caused that to move something Mm. had to kick that into motion so there had to be a first mover well today we think that the first mover was the big bang but then the question is, where did the Big Bang come
0: from? <laughs> All right. Bang- I remember being five years old and talking about this with my cousin <laughs> up until late at night, and we never could figure that, uh, that one out. If you've got if you got another quick second, um, you are continuing Einstein's search to unite the four fundamental forces of nature into one unified theory. If I remember my reading The Populist Einstein, he said that um, the more he studied the outer limits of our universe— uh, the more he realized there had to be a god or, or a starter of it all. Is that true?
2: Well, he believed that there were two kinds of god. One is the god that you pray to, the personal god, the, the god that smites the Philistines. He believed <laughs> in the god of Spinoza, that is, the god of beauty, harmony. The universe is gorgeous. It didn't have to be that way. The universe could have been ugly, random, chaotic.
0: This is, this is a, it's, you know, we could do this for another half an hour. Unfortunately, given the dimension that I live in, I have to take a quick break for some (laughs) commercial messages or else I won't even be in this dimension.
1: Michael Savage, a host like no other.
0: The next interview today is very rare. It's with David Mamet, the great playwright, who talks about his influences And politics in general I think you're gonna find this one very remarkable welcome back to the savage nation we have a great guest on right now not normal fare for talk radio especially in times like these but there's a political overtone to David Mamet Pulitzer Prize winning uh, author playwright screenwriter you name it and he joins us with his new book what's going on in the world of politics I saw interviews going back to the Village Voice in 08, David Mamet, Why, why I Am No Longer a Brain-Dead Liberal. I saw a Paris Review interview uh, by John Lar. I mean, you've got to read these things to understand the context that we're going to talk about. But the time is so short, let's not run over it. Mr. Mamet, welcome to the Savage Nation. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. So, I... I've read many of your things. I've seen many of your films. And um, who was it who influenced you the most as a young writer? Can you tell us that?
3: Absolutely. It was uh, three things. It was the work of Harold Pinter and also the work of Samuel Beckett. And also as a kid, I worked at the Second City in in Chicago watching improvisational theaters. a young kid, as a teenager, as a, as a busboy there. And mm. I watched the people improvising short scenes. And then I read Harold Pinter's review sketches and I saw that Pinter... Was doing exactly the same thing, Then I read Chekhov, and I said, oh "My gosh, he's doing exactly the same thing." All of Chekhov's plays are really just short sketches woven together. And hmm. I said, well, "Hell, you know, I'm a gag writer; I can do that." So I started.
0: Hmm. Well, I myself was influenced by Eugene O'Neill, especially *Long Day's Journey Into Night*. I remember lines that carried me through many a day, such as. Success is a stale finale. The struggle is the success. I'm sure you, you know, have encountered this over your life. I also was influenced personally by Eugene Ionesco, the godfather of the theater of the absurd. Did either of these men have any, you know, imp- impact upon you, O'Neill or Ionesco?
3: Well, yeah, O'Neill had a great impact on me because as a young man, I was doing a lot of writing in the evening, I was doing a lot of work during the day, and when I went to see an O'Neill play, I could catch up on my sleep. And that, so that was O'Neill, but uh, UNESCO. <laughs> Thanks, so I, I, these are the gags, people. So then I went to, uh, I was in Paris a long time, 40 years ago, when I was watching Rhinoceros done in French, and I, everyone was laughing frankly, and I realized, oh my God, it's a comedy it's just a comedy so i went back and i read looked again at all of the, the theater of the absurd all the literature and the uh, aesthetics that i grew up reading i said oh, these guys they're, they're gag writers too
0: yeah very funny so is is it all a, a cosmic joke as henry miller said
3: is 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 everything a cosmic joke? That's the question. So we in in the West think that the highest form of drama is called tragedy, which is the final realization that we are not in control and that we are sinners, uh, and here we are. And comedy is almost tragedy, which is we are not in control and we are sinners, but the gods exist and sometimes they relent. So these are the two things that I've been trying to write for the last 50 years. Because the the big question is that question, not posed by Plato, but posed by Daffy Duck, which is, hey, what's going on here anyway? So that's that's the, uh, the question that I've been addressing.
0: Well, you have a new book out entitled The Diary of a Porn Star by Priscilla Riston Ranger. What is that about? Well, I was
3: looking at Stummy Daniels, and I was thinking uh, 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 all that circus, and I was thinking i wonder what I wonder what a porn star does when she's not doing porn films. So like mm-hmm. this imaginary character in the book is a, is a joke there's nothing pornographic in it. We're <laughs> talking about she worked for the United States Forest service <laughs> lectured at the she lectured at the Naval War College and <laughs> fishing with Shimon Perez.
0: Oh, God. See, I've got to get that book. I can't I can't wait to read that book. But look, you become even more controversial than you've ever been because you I I didn't didn't want to drag it into politics, but maybe you you wouldn't mind. Uh, you, You came out saying Trump's not such a bad guy, right?
3: Well, I mean, I, I've done some business with him personally, and I don't think he's a bad guy. More importantly, he's a great president. I think he's... I, I, and he's reminded us, as any uh, sui, uh, sui generous as any person that comes out of left field, he reminds us what it's all about. And I, I, I think of what uh, it was It was Bobby Jones said when he saw Arnold Palmer play golf. He says he, he plays a game with which I am unfamiliar. So hmm. he comes out of left field, and he spent his life... Hobbing and mobbing with politics, buying and selling politicians, dealing with uh, the mob, dealing with the unions, dealing with contractors all day
0: long. Yeah, well, it's kind of no different than dealing with Nancy Pelosi and the Democrat mob, is it? So look, so you've been tirelessly lambasted for this. And I don't know how, how does it work in Hollywood that you support the people I hate the most? What are they what are they doing to you?
3: Well, I've been, I've been, I've been uh, basically blacklisted by the, the media of the left, and uh, they don't, talk, I, I don't exist to them
0: anymore. Mm, oh, the Stalinist method—you you don't exist. I get it. The Stalinist methodology.
3: Yeah. Okay. You know, you got to be known by your enemies as, as well as your friends. And as far as uh, Hollywood goes, I, you know, I wrote many, many movies and TV shows for a number of years. And I'm, I, yeah, I'm kind of getting too old to do that anyway, so I'm just going to sit in my garden and smell the flowers and write, write plays and books for a while. But the terrible thing in Hollywood is that anyone who is a conservative and is, what we say, below the line, that if they're not a featured player or a featured producer or writer, they have to keep mum, because when they open their mouths, they lose their career. And that's the saddest thing I ever saw.
0: Well, of course, it goes to the whole issue of freedom of speech is what writers are all about. And uh, how can you have an open uh, theater, an open movie, an open play without freedom of speech and freedom of thought? So so obviously, as one of the leaders in your field, you must be feeling this terribly. But you're not the only conservative in Hollywood. You know, you look at a guy who plays on the Ray Donovan show. And do you do you know him at all? The, the, the great actor? Who, who are we talking about? No, not Schreiber, the guy who. John Voight, John Voight. You know John. John's a very staunch Trump supporter and, and, and conservative.
3: Oh, of course. I, yeah, I've known him for years. Yes, absolutely.
0: Well, I became friendly with him because I have a home in the area. I go to once in a while. Somehow somehow he, you know, he manages to survive. I wonder how that works. I don't know how it how it works at all, uh, in, in that world. I don't know how they haven't thrown him off off the stage.
3: Well, these are the people who, who as a, he's, he's above the line, he's a featured player, and he's got enough, cl- listen, there's an old Hollywood gag that Samuel Goldwyn, who ran Goldwyn Studios, Metro Goldwyn, said, of somebody, throw that son of a gun out of my office, and I never want to see him again unless I need him.
0: <laughs> so, oh, yeah, that's, that sounds like Hollywood. But look, you're surviving, you have a new book, you're still doing screenplays, Right.
3: Yeah, I'm writing screenplays. I have a new book, A Diary of a Porn Star. Great title. And I'm, I'm about to open a new play uh, in Los Angeles this month. And I did a play in uh, with John Malkovich last summer on the West End in London about a, a bloated movie producer who's accused of sexual uh, harassment. So I'm, I'm having a good deal of
0: fun. Your, your play opens. Um, it's called The Christopher Boy's Communion, starring William H. Macy. And Rebecca Pigeon scheduled to begin performances February 13 at the Odyssey Theater Ensemble in Los Angeles. That sounds fascinating. Uh, how does anyone get a ticket for that? Maybe I should come down there and go to that one. It's only—it's like next week.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the way to do is—I think—if you look up the Odyssey Theater, they have a website there. Odyssey Theater in Los Angeles. Right. It's—it's. It's, we're having a lot of fun.
0: Well, okay. Let's—if we can, Mister Mamet, let's go back to your your statement about Mr. Trump. You said you did business with him. Can you tell us what that was?
3: Yeah, he called me up out of the blue uh, a few years ago. Uh, it was the 60s before 60s, and he had some idea about a couple of movies ideas that he wanted to do. So we kicked it around for a few hours, and it, you know, like like most things in show business, it, it, Peter and Adam never came to anything, but I enjoyed talking with him. Hmm.
0: Yeah, he is that spontaneous, Uh, absolutely. When he offered me hot dogs on Air Force One in the Flying Oval Office, I saw who the man really was. It wasn't the first time I had met him. He's the opposite of what people say he is, absolutely the opposite. But that's typical of the left today. They actually reflect on him what they are themselves in so many ways, unfortunately. Uh, It's sad that Hollywood has not uh, permitted itself to become a little more tolerant in a business that requires tremendous tolerance, isn't it?
3: Well, uh, if you look at Hollywood uh, over the course of the last 100 years that it's been in operation, 100-plus years, basically what they're doing is they're selling popcorn, right? They want to put the pushies in the seats, and they make money off of selling the popcorn, and they're catering to the zeitgeist. I mean, you know, Aeschylus and Plautus and Shakespeare do not write movies. And people don't go to the movies to see uh, philosophy. They go to the movies to forget the troubles for an hour and a
0: half. Yes, 100 percent right. You know, I, I was looking at Ionesco again. I, I don't know if you like them or not. Theater, are the absurd. And one of his lines was ideology separate us. Dreams and anguish bring us together. I thought that was a great line. What do you think of that?
3: Well, I think it's absolutely true, because um, I, I wrote a play we did on Broadway a few years ago called November about a president of the United States, and his speechwriter is writing him a speech, and she says, you know, people say we're a country divided, but we really aren't. And she says, what we are is a democracy. That means that people have different um, goals, they have different aspirations, but we laugh at the same jokes. We slap each other on the back, and we made that month's quota. And I'm not at all sure that we don't love each other. And that's what I thought watching the Super Bowl yesterday, which is uh, the game was spectacular. Great game. Magnificent athletes. But if you look at the commercials, the Uh, commercials are are superb. And they're all about not about diversity, but they're about unity. Right. Black people, white people, gay people.
0: Yeah, I thought that the athletes were in a a class of their own. But I've been I've been smashing the, the halftime show, which got me sick. Because I think it set back the cause. I think it set back the cause of female equality, not only because of its pornographic element, but because it was it was graceless. It didn't even have any grace to it. But that's, you know, only my opinion. You know, just going back to this one thing again on the politics, dreams and anguish bring us together. Remember nine eleven, how the people came together? I pray to God we don't have to have another national tragedy for us to lay down the, the the hatchets for each other. But it seems to me it's never been this bad. Uh, David and I've been around a, a long time in America. I've lived through an awful lot of periods here. I've never seen it this bad. Have you? Uh,
3: no. That is to say, if we look at the uh, the fora I and mean, we look at the, the the universities, we look at the uh, the the media. It's a, 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 aside from your talk radio and and uh, the Wall Street Journal, it's they're, What they're preaching is hatred and divisiveness. But if you actually go around the country. Well, the country's doing great. People are getting along grandly. And it's yes. a shame that the left, the terrible thing the left has done is that it, what, what, is, what it's imposed upon anyone who's not a conservative is, it's my way or the highway. If you don't ascribe to everything that we, whoever has the microphone today says... You, you're going you're gonna to risk losing your career, your wife, your husband, your children, and your face in the community. And that's, that's terrible, because the people on the left can't allow, liberals can't allow themselves even to question. Because someone at a liberal dinner party who says, well, wait a second, on the other hand, that party's over.
0: Unbelievable. I know your time is short, and I truly honor the time we've spent together. We're speaking with David Mamet, the Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright. And much more than that, his new book is The Diary of a Porn Star by Priscilla Wriston-Ranger. Of course, uh, that's not a real person. He has a new play coming out uh, next week, February 13th, at the Odyssey Theater Ensemble in Los Angeles. David, thank you so much for being with us on The Savage Nation.
3: It's 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 a great pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Unbelievable, right? Short and sweet. There's so much more that I feel we could have talked about. But remember, we have a time constraint in talk radio And uh, if you have any comments to make about this uh, discussion that I've just had or you'd like to hear the whole thing, it will be on the podcast later today as I think one of my most interesting interviews. Someone said, oh, I can't wait to – when I put it on Twitter last night, they said, oh, I can't wait to hear David Mamet on your show because I remember when you interviewed the father of the neutron bomb. People remember interviews I have done over 20 years ago. I'll never forget the Samuel Cohen interview, by
1: the way. I'll be back. The Savage Nation, it's Savage On Demand. Here is an
0: interesting talk I had with James Fallon, a neuroscientist who studied the brain patterns of psychopaths, who talks about being a psychopath and the psychopath inside. That should appeal to most of you. They have a guest at 130 who we planned weeks ago that I'm really happy to have because it almost fits in perfectly. It's astounding. I booked this guest. I saw his article in a, in a, in a great magazine a few uh, weeks ago. His name is James Fallon. He's an American neuroscientist, professor of psychiatry and human behavior. That's not why I had him on. He wrote a phenomenal article about antisocial personalities. It was much stronger than that. He wrote a book in 2013 called The Psychopath Inside. The Psychopath Inside, a Neuroscientist's Personal Journey into the Dark Side of the Brain. And I was so intrigued by it. I read the book, and I studied his history, and he'll be with us at the bottom of the hour. By the way, he's an expert in the field of cognition and war to the Pentagon's Joint Command, and he knows all about psychopathic personalities because he himself states that he has the neurological and genetic correlates of psychopathology, meaning antisocial personality disorder. And he categorizes himself as a pro-social psychopath. And in his book... He said that he would have become a psychopath had he not had such good parents. It's a phenomenally important subject for today. <laughs> As you could well imagine. it almost fits in perfectly, guys, when you think about it. So we'll have Dr. Fallon on and talk about psychopathic behavior uh, on the show. I stumbled upon an article entitled The uh, Psychopath Inside, and it's about the antisocial personality disorder by James Fallon. I was so intrigued that we invited Dr. Fallon on the show, and he will speak for himself. Dr. Fallon, thanks. It is an honor to have you on the program. Thanks for being with us. Michael, thanks. I, I like that doo-wop you're playing there. See that? Well, as we we have something in common anyway, which is all rock and roll. So, you know, you write these great books. You're a real professor as opposed to the, to the people who don't do much in the universities. Chemical neuroanatomy, higher brain functions, brain imaging, you're the real McCoy. Uh, you got your postdoc doc in chemical neuroanatomy at UC San Diego. So, you've looked inside the brain. You write this great book, "The Psychopath Inside," a neuroscientist's personal journey into the dark side of the brain. And what intrigued me is you said that you found your own brain patterns are those of a psychopath. Yeah,
4: Michael, it was uh, quite uh, pretty strange and quite by accident. Uh, I had for years been studying the brain scans of uh, murderers, serial killers, murderers, since 1989. And um, I was really going through a whole group of them that had just come in from different people, different scans. And I also, at the same time, we were doing clinical trials on Alzheimer's disease and schizophrenia. Well, uh, we needed more people to be in the trial. We meet, needed more normal people in the Alzheimer's trial, so I said, oh, Look, I'll get my family. This is the first mistake. And
0: uh, <laughs> Wait a minute. So you were using your family as, as controls?
4: As controls. We didn't have Alzheimer's. In um in my side and in my wife's side, they did have Alzheimer's, but she didn't have it have it. Her mother and father had died with it, and her brother, aunt, a lot on that side. So it was kind of taking a chance for her and I said how about getting a scan for you know you and me and, and my brothers and sister and people in our family, and and she said let's go for it uh, and and she was kind of brave because something you, many people don't even want to find out so anyway we did the study the Alzheimer's study and when it came back and I was looking at the PET scans positron emission tomography brain scans I uh, I'd leaf through them quickly because I've seen you know over a thousand of these so I know what normal abnormal looks like. And I got through the whole pile, and they were all normal. So I really felt uh, quite good about that. This was all my family scans. And I got to the bottom of the pile. (laughs) I I, I looked at it, and I started to laugh. Now, the two technicians were there. I said, real funny, guys. You slipped one in because I had a pile of these murder scans on the table. And I said, you did the old switcheroo. Because, you know, people screw around in labs like they do anywhere, any
0: office. you, You thought they put a murderer's brain scan in with your family?
4: Oh yeah, I said. Look, this this guy at the bottom, obviously is like a psychopath because it looked like the worst shape I'd see. And I said, whoever it is, shouldn't be walking around in open society.
0: <laughs> oh, come on, this is seriously funny.
4: Uh, well, it, was, it was so strange, and they go, "No, we're not kidding." And I, and I knew they weren't kidding. He said, "It's part of your family," so I had to peel back the name because I didn't. We don't have the names on them, uh, you know, just to say for safety to society. And I two back, and, and there it was. It was my name. So it was.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Psychological nudity is the middle name of my show. So you oh, okay. actually have the same brain scan as murderers. What is, in in the layman's terms, Doctor Fallon? What was different about your brain scan uh, from the norm?
4: Well, my brain scan looked like all the psychopaths I had looked at, and the way all these <laughs> brains look different is that the parts of the brain that process emotional behavior, it's called the limbic system, and it also has to do with social behavior with people, between people, and that's turned off. It's abnormally turned off uh, in in psychopaths, and it was in mine, and it was uh, it was the whole system it was like a perfect case, and the rest of the brain was normal, so it was almost like a pure case.
0: So so let's take a case in, in, in real, real life that, that evil... Nicholas, who shot the other kids in Florida, if you were to look, and you can't say you didn't, at his brain, that type or the one in Las Vegas, they would have no limbic, the limbic feedback system would be shut off. Is that what you're saying?
4: Well, people kill for different reasons. Of those, the psychopaths have a very similar brain pattern. So if they were psychopaths, they would have this part of the brain turned off. Yes.
0: Unbelievable. I have to go out and get a scan though. I'm pretty sure most people in Talk Radio would match yours.
4: Well, you know there's a there's a high percentage of people in different professions and one is journalism.
0: <laughs> I know, I'm sure of it. You have to have some kind of turn off of a feedback in order to do this every day and not be affected by it to the point where you become uh, immobile.
4: Exactly. It's it's about 1% of each society on earth. Every society has has them. And so there's an idea that there's some survival value probably for the species to have a certain percentage of these people uh, in the society. It's bad, you know. Oh,
0: now what? Now you're touching on a raw nerve because I was thinking about that. How are you going to get a soldier to go on the front lines and cut another man's guts out in a knife fight unless he has some of the, the same characteristics, right?
4: Well, you know, if one of the things is— uh, There is the infantry, and usually in the infantry there is the touch of the sleeve that's very important, okay? The touch of the sleeve has to do with empathy, and usually emotional empathy, the same kind of emotional empathy you'd have between best friends, for example. And so people in infantry have this emotional empathy, and that is not found in psychopaths you tend to find it more in lone wolves in snipers things like that where they don't have to empathize with people and in fact they're targets just like the targets of the of the uh, the guy in Vegas were just you know they weren't humans they were just tar- mm. so that you tend to find them there now I'm not, I'm not saying that snipers are psychopaths but that sort of personality
0: no the truth <laughs> is and I'm not making this up one of my best friends is a sniper and a very distinguished one I'm going to be a little more careful around them now that's right, that's right. Now you you're also an expert. You work for the Pentagon's Joint Command, right? And you're an expert in the field of cognition and war. What, what is that about, doctor?
4: Well, you know the idea. I was I was brought in uh, to you know di- the different uh, panels and meetings to advise the Pentagon, and the idea is, you know, how, if war is inevitable, and even in the Pentagon they hate war, but they, if war is inevitable, how do we reduce the total trauma of war that is how do we get somebody to when they return from war not to remain a killer how to avoid ptsd how to find people who will react uh... and react effectively because if you sit around thinking too much you're going to die right you're going to get shot yourself so how do you maximize that behavioral response necessary for that athletic event that is war uh, but without Exposing people who are susceptible to PTSD or having psychopaths. you know what psychopaths? Well you know they just come back in society after the war and then are predators on and citizens near them. So it's, it's you know it's how do we how do how do we sort of balance these two things so I uh,
0: how come you no so you have the same brain pattern to go back to what you initially said as that of murderers, but you haven't become a murderer. you're a distinguished scientist and author. Why do you think you did not end up a criminal, and more broadly, does that apply to the general pub- public as well, of people who may have the same brain scan?
4: Right, and that's a great question. And, and we don't know in my case or in other cases where it doesn't happen, so you can prove the negative, or, you know, why something didn't happen. But from what we know now, it's, it's important. Two things are important. First of all, most of your personality traits, these are normal traits with a different range of aggression high aggression, low aggression, they're normal. And everybody has a different combination. And there's about 350 of these behaviors that are called, you know, adaptive traits. And each of those is regulated by about 10, 15, 20 genes. And so depending on the random assortment of gene forms that you get from your mother and father, you're then set with a certain personality traits. Now, those are fine. The problem is if early in life, between birth, and let's say three years of age, if you're abused or abandoned. This is very bad. So there's always the question of nature and nurture. What's more important? Well, it turns out to not be the right question, which we found out in the past few years. Mm. It's the, 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 the environment is important if you have the susceptibility genes for these personality disorders, violence, etc. Mm. Resistence. Then you know it's like that kid that falls down the stairs. He jumps up laughing or gets hit. Some people are very resistant, but if you have those genes and you're abused, or you know, then this is big trouble.
0: Mm, then you go. <laughs> then you become. Then you become a, a vengeance type, a get even type. Uh, how can we spot a psychopath? You you say you can read them on a PET scan, but what about a man walking down the street in a normal conversation at work or in a family? What are, are there any signs?
4: Well, first of all, Michael, you can't look at a brain scan or the genetics to determine if somebody is a murderer or a psychopath. You you have to do that behaviorally by several days of uh, expert analysis by a psychiatrist who understands personality disorders. Once you established, you have to get inside their head. It's not just their behavior. And remember, a sociopath, psychopath, they do the same things but for different reasons. So you have to get inside the head of them, the, and that takes... Some days of analysis to find out and so that's how you find out if somebody's a psychopath and then once you do then the PET scans, fMRIs, the genetics will tell you why they're that way and so that's mm. it's kind of reverse of the way people
0: use yeah. it. Yeah, fascinating. So you, you can't really tell in other words from the outside it's really behavior based in other words if they act like a murderer they're a murderer and then you look back and say here's then you look back and say here's why. But can you predict in advance? This is a an area almost like Brave New World, where we're, we're going to start scanning the brains of young children and say, uh, we better put this guy away because he might be a murderer. We're not going to do that, are we?
4: No, but there are, you know, kids have early signs of, of behaviors that later can be uh, become psychopathy if the person has a certain genetics and brain pattern and they're abused. So the idea is the positive mm-hmm. Is that if we know that somebody's susceptible, you tell that you tell a parent, you know, make sure this kid doesn't get bullied, and you know, mm. watch out for this kid. I, I'm personally, because of my politics, I'm a libertarian, so I'm against that. But it would work, and so that's a you know, it's one of these things you think neuroscience and genetics are going to help society. It actually makes it kind of worse because it gives you these options that are not consistent, I think, with a with an open democracy and the you know on the freedom of individual but I and mean, that's a political discussion but practically it could be done mm-hmm.
0: we're speaking with Dr. James Fallon author of The Psychopath Inside which is an unbelievable book what about um, people who choose certain professions are there certain professions as we hinted at before where you might people find people who fit this profile a little bit more than uh, people would think do you have another few minutes after the break Dr. Fallon Okay. Can, he, can you stay with You know why? Because I don't want to go back to what Trump just did with the budget, because our hearts are broken. And I'd rather stick with this phenomenal discussion on the Savage Nation. The minute I come back, we'll go back with, are you a psychopath? How would I know? Why, we go back now to my sterling guest, Dr. James Fallon, author of The Psychopath Inside. Dr. Fallon, any closing words for my audience?
4: Yeah, sure, Michael. You know, people should keep in mind that there's two basic kinds of groups of traits of so- psychopaths. One is called fearless dominance, and they're very positive pro-social traits that people like. They're glib. Uh, they have low anxiety, low depression, a sense of well-being, and they have a light around them when you walk into a room. They seem to have charisma. People are attracted to it. That's the part that they will show people for the longest time. So it's very hard to see this until you start interacting with them.
0: Like, wait, wait—you're saying that many psychopaths have this, this, this trait?
4: Oh yeah. No, this is wow. what's so dangerous that that they come across as very charming, very good. So, in other,
0: you know, in other words, the con the con man has that, right? The confidence man has that.
4: Yes, absolutely. Now, the other group of traits—it's called self-centered impulsivity, which is this carefree sort of impulsiveness. Uh, it's egocentric, but it has to do with aggressiveness and antisocial behavior and criminality. That's the negative side. They will not show you that part for a while. If they, they People may, psychopaths may work somebody for weeks or months before, or even years sometimes, before they really go after them, either to take the for all their work uh, or, or to really control them. The idea is they're predators on other people. They'll have many people going at one time so they can be uh, kind of patient, the smart ones.
0: And well, it sounds like it sounds like it sounds like a dating game in some some regards. A lot of guys oh. use these tactics. Uh, don't a lot of men come on with the good side? In other words, first and then show you the dark side.
4: That's exactly it. So you don't know what's coming, usually for a while, and then they
0: start. Look, to- I got. A, I only got 20 seconds, James Fallon. I knew this would be good. It's going to be better again because I'd like you back on the show. You're based in the East Coast, right? You're not in my neighborhood where you can do a PET scan of my brain over the weekend.
2: <laughs> well. <laughs> <laughs> I
4: live in Southern California,
0: so. Uh, All right, I have a home. I have a home down there. I have to give you a call and put my head inside a machine and see what motivates me and what makes Sammy run. James Fallon, great guest, Doctor. The book is "The Psychopath Inside."
1: The Savage Nation. It's Savage, Uncut, Unfiltered, and Raw. Next up is an interview with Pat Moore, co-founder of
0: Greenpeace who talks about being a sensible environmentalist. He's a really good guy, and I believe in his work, and that's why I interviewed Pat Moore. Our guest today is Dr. Patrick Moore. You may know him because he recently came out real strongly against the ideas of, of Alexandria Halfwit Cortex. He called her a pompous little twit. Now, he is a co-founder of Greenpeace, great organization, and he served for nine years as president of Greenpeace Canada, and seven years uh, as a director of Greenpeace International. You say, well, he's an environmental wacko. Well, listen carefully. He's not. He's the opposite. After 15 years, he left Greenpeace and is now critical of the group, later writing the book Confessions of a Greenpeace Dropout, the making of a sensible environmentalist. And that's the essence of what we're going to talk about today, which is how do intelligent people who care about the planet and wildlife become sensible environmentalists instead of insane, whack-job environmentalists. And that's what we're going to talk about. After completing a bachelor's degree in forest biology at the University of British Columbia and a Ph.D. in ecology, Mr. Moore became involved first in the Western Canada branch of the Sierra Club and later Greenpeace. His involvement in Greenpeace between 1971 and 1986 spanned roles as a campaigner in Greenpeace Canada against whaling, against uranium mining, against killing seals, reducing toxic waste, nuclear warships, all left-wing stuff. But he left them after 15 years because they became rather crazy. He joins us now on The Savage Nation to talk about all things environmental. Well, let's begin with the um, dramatic role of the drums. Uh, You came out strong against the ideas of who I call Occasional Cortex, uh, the the 60, 90-day wonder who was recently collecting tips in a bar and now is running the world. And you said that the Alexander Occasional Cortex is a pompous little twit. But how big a danger is she to environmental policies, in your opinion?
5: Well, I think AOC, as they call her, too, is uh, a, a very important danger. Uh, she, she's just a front for the movement to take over the Democratic Party uh, from the far left side to the sort of Venezuela socialism side. And uh, I think we should treat this with the utmost concern.
0: Uh, they well, are she, organized. She's, she's not alone. She is. She's not a. Al- She's not alone. Even this, this, this Beto from Texas is the same exact policies.
5: Yes. Alexandria herself is basically just a front. She is kind of like an actor in this whole thing. Uh, the people behind her, the, 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 the Justice Democrats uh, and the uh, Sunrise Movement, are, are, are sort of like Occupy warmed over, only they're better organized. Uh, the Green New Deal was written in in a weekend brain session, or so-called brain session, and uh, it's so ridiculous.
0: You mean the ending air travel, um, as, as things of that nature? They threw it together over a, a couple of joints and some beer,
5: something like that. Yes, uh, you'd think so by reading it too. Um, some of the proposals in it are so are are are, are essentially silly, um, and uh, yet it's very serious because there's so many people who are paying attention to it and adopting this as their own policy, even people who are going to be running for president
0: in 20. I know. Even the Democrat Party itself. Do you see all the stupid people standing behind her when she kicked it off, nodding like they agreed with her when they had no idea what was in it?
5: Yeah, it's a real bandwagon. Um, and as you may know, in politics, uh, this is a kind of phenomenon that comes along. Uh, people want to be part of it. Uh, and She's very good uh, at what she does. She's a very attractive uh, front for this movement uh, to move the United States to the far left. Um, and, and a lot of young people um, who have uh, been brainwashed basically their whole school lives. Uh, I mean, we, we hear that the polls say that a majority of millennials support socialism. I'm not Um, sure they know what it means.
0: Oh, I'm sure they don't, but it sounds cool. I hope they don't find out. Well, Mr. Moore, you certainly agree with me. I agree with you. I mean, we're rational people. I worked in this field for most of my life. In addition to being totally crazy, you have argued that these morons who call for reducing fossil fuel production don't realize what would happen in the world if their radical plans were implemented. And you said... If fossil fuels were banned, every tree in the world would be cut down for fuel for cooking and heating. You would bring about mass death. You went on to say you don't have a plan to grow food for 8 billion people without fossil fuels or get food into the cities. You also unloaded on this moron for calling climate change our World War II. What an insult that is to all of the men lying in shallow graves around the world who actually defeated Hitler. You said that your Green New Deal would be worse than World War II. Imagine. No fuel for cars, trucks, tractors, combines, harvesters, power plants, ships, aircraft, transport of people and goods would grind to a halt. Isn't isn't that what they want?
5: I'm not sure uh, what they want. Um, it, it's really unfortunate that they're getting away with proposing such things. Because when I say that, when I said to her, "Your policies will result in mass death," I mean it. Uh, that we cannot. We cannot grow food without fossil fuels for the tractors, if nothing else. But fossil fuels are essential to almost all of our means of production. And uh, sure, we could give up some of the uh, non-essential things in our lives, I'm sure. But most of the things that run on fossil fuels are pretty essential to our daily existence. And we we we, we have to we have to think straight about this because. Uh, if you end up, for example, if we ended up with a democratic ele- uh, win uh, of House and Senate and President in 2020, and they'd all agreed that we're going to phase out fossil fuels, this would this would be basically a, a, a kind of apocalypse. Uh, it would be worse than World War II. But in, the reality is, the United States isn't going to give up fossil fuels if nobody else does. Uh, these these people live in a complete bubble. I, I think they, you know, that old joke about New York—they they can't see past the Hudson River. Uh, and yeah,
0: but if you look at the the people running for office on the on the Democrat side, you've got Gavin Newsom, exactly the same mentality as her, a little more polished perhaps, but the same exact stupidity. You've got this guy Beto, the same exact apoc- the same exact apocalyptic talk that the world is going to come to an end. Uh, unless we go so far to the left that the world does come to an end, so how can these people go through everyday life and not see what hip- hypocrites and liars they are? How do they how do they do that?
5: Well, I, I don't think that's a problem for them. I, I think that their ambition uh, for power uh, goes beyond their concern for truth and justice, for that matter. Uh, they use they use words. In a, I, I, I would say, a really sick kind of way. In the same way that they describe themselves as progressives, when they're anything but progressive, uh, they're regressive to the extreme. Uh, they use words like climate justice, uh, they, use, mm-hmm. they use carbon dioxide as, as a swear word, uh, mm-hmm. they, they color words. This is propaganda perfectly typical of Trotsky in the Soviet Union. Uh, Trotsky uh, was was the master at accusing other people of what he was. I think Mm -hmm. they're calling it projection now. In other words, that the left projects its own foibles on the other side as if they are the good guys, when in fact they are the ones that are engaging in this fraud.
0: Well look at this guy Beto O'Rourke. He says the world faces catastrophe. He warns that hundreds of millions of climate refugees will overwhelm borders and humanity could go extinct unless we fix the planet in 12 years. And then he talks about interconnected crises in our democracy, economy, and climate. And uh, he, he says there's apocalyptic threat about global warming. Large parts of the world will soon be uninhabitable. Now, let's get real about this. You've spent decades on the oceans in Greenpeace, stopping the whaling and things of that nature. I'm a boater. I live 10 feet from the, um, from the water here, I have for years, and I've studied tide charts for years. I have not seen a centimeter rise in sea levels. Have you?
5: There's a very slight rise in sea level with this modern warm period. That we're having now. Uh, It's been going on for 300 years. There's no increase in... Well that's why I haven't seen it.
0: I've only been looking at it for 20 years. I can't say I've been looking at tide charts for 300 years. But in the 20 years I've been looking at it, I I don't see any sea rise.
5: No, and and in in many parts of the world there is no sea rise because the the shoreline is building with sediments, etc. It's a very complicated subject and it's just being used as a scare story And it's easy to use for people who live near the sea uh, because they they are afraid their houses will be lost. And indeed, in many parts of the world uh, where people have built their houses on shifting sands, Mm. uh, on sand islands and on sand dunes and sandy cliffs, erosion occurs. It's a natural thing, and tides and currents change with time, Mm. and sometimes houses fall into the sea. But that's not necessarily anything to do with sea level rise. The sea level today is extremely stable compared to what it was coming out of the last glaciation when it rose more than 400 feet. It was in a period of 10,000 years. But it's not rising like that today because all those huge glaciers melted and are, are gone now.
0: You know, I use a simplistic argument that is still factually true. In fact, when I met President Trump, he smiled when I said to him that the simplest answer to this global warming hysteria is say to the opposition, how do you explain the six or seven ice ages that came and went prior to man's industrialization? They don't have an answer for that, do they?
5: No, they don't. But actually, there is an answer to it. It's called the Milankovitch Cycles, and it's a cycle of the Earth's orbit and the Earth's tilt. uh, And that's well known. But these people do not have any idea about anything that happened before they were born
0: <laughs> okay that that explains it all
5: before hundred years ago you know they they, they they are they are brain dead in terms of any historical perspective on life on Earth or planet Earth or the, the ice ages and the, 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 the greenhouse ages they
0: have no knowledge of this no no but there's an, there's an awful lot of these brainwashed young pioneers they look to me like the young Mao Tung murderers who were called the Red Guards or the Red Brigades in other countries. They look like Pol Pot's Khmer Rouge, and they are very dangerous indeed. I don't think they should be laughed off. I think we have to expose them for what they are. These are fascistic at their core. They want to impose their insanity upon others, even if it's not real. Wouldn't you agree with that?
5: Yes, I agree with that, but... It, I mean, they're not carrying costs just yet, but uh, they, they are kind of, to me, like a dangerous Occupy movement warmed over. Uh, Occupy was almost like theater, uh, but this is more than that. This is serious power uh, politics, and uh, they, they are, in fact, quite dangerous.
0: Well, then let's, let's talk about it from another point of view. They say, oh, they're scaring us people because they're telling the truth but we've got Gavin Newsom espousing the same exact philosophy even though he's a wealthy uh, Caucasian man we've got this Beto O'Rourke again the same scare tactics uh, in favor of open borders in favor of ending fossil fuel use even though they all use private jets it's astounding and uh, I've often said conservatives political conservatives should embrace the environmental movement as conservationists, which I have done for years, and I ask, why has the left been able to hijack this issue? Why have conservatives neglected conservation? And I, I have the answer, because many of them, frankly, are as ignorant of the issues as the left is, is what I've discovered. I mean, you have major league so-called conservative people in radio who laugh about killing sea turtles, saying most of them die when they migrate to sea. And they don't want to turn their lights off for their mansions in Palm Beach. It gets me agitated to listen to this kind of Neanderthal thinking. Uh, I am an animal protectionist to a great extent. As you know, we talked about whales when you were on the show last. I think the conservatives are deaf, dumb, and blind when it comes to environmental and wildlife issues. Don't you?
5: Well, I I don't know. I don't like to make
0: generalities uh, of that nature. and. Uh, I, I, I'm, I don't know those kinds well, of... I, I'll take the heat for it, because I have not seen a single in, uh, conservative come out in favor of... All they do is attack the left without offering some reasonable center or reasonable alternative. They just laugh at them, and that's not going to win the day. I think we need to be sensitive to the extinction of uh, animal species, don't you?
5: Yes, of course.
0: Well, you, you've uh, fought for years to save whales, So you certainly have been on the front lines of that one, stopping ships that were still whaling. We could go into that at another time. But that's not directly an environmental issue per se. That's an issue of uh, extinction based upon primitive thinking. What do you think needs to be done other than educating the public, which is a very difficult job in this age of Instagram, where people are more interested in looking at each other's naked bodies than they are in looking at the naked truth? What's what's got to happen for people to wake up to the fallacies of the occasional cortexes and others?
5: Well, in in some cases, what's required is to actually go through a difficult period resulting from adopting stupid ideas. Uh, That's happened once or twice in history. Uh, But to tell you the truth, I don't propose to have some kind of blueprint or how we get from where we are now to a better understanding of these things. I just do what I can every day to try to explain to people how I see the world and, 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 and how I, in this case, how I see what a disaster it would be to adopt anything associated with the Green New Deal. Uh, it, it has at least given us a foil or an arguing point uh, to point out how, how crazy uh... this uh... side of politics has become and, and it indeed does threaten to take over the democratic party uh... with over half the people running for president on the democrat side adopting this as their policy so hopefully this will tip the scales and sanity will prevail and they will not win anything in the twenty twenty elections uh, it, it will come back to a pathway towards uh, a saner future. That would be what I would hope would happen.
0: So do you actually think that now that the ideas, which get crazy, do you think that it's starting to backfire on them the more people hear about ending air travel uh, and, and and redoing every house in the world, knocking down the walls and reinsulating them? Do you think that it finally has reached the point where people see how nuts they are? I would certainly hope so. All right, well, before we conclude, let's get to the Greenpeace issue. You helped create the organization, then you left it. I assume that's because they became rather extremist. Is that what happened?
5: Yes, I, I'd say that's a fair conclusion. I didn't like the policies that my fellow uh, activists were promoting.
0: Which were what, far-left political positions?
5: Yes, I, I think you could describe them as that.
1: Thank you for being with us. Thank you very much. Nice to be with you. Thank you for listening. Home of Borders. Language. Culture. The Savage Nation.
0: Now, here is one of the most memorable interviews I ever did in my entire career. It was with the father of the neutron bomb, Samuel Cohen. You'll never hear anything like this. Never. Last week on this program, we had an astounding Uh, news-making interview with the father of the hydrogen bomb, Dr. Ed Teller, who um, said a few words, which you're going to hear repeated in the next few minutes. In order to get some bearing as to whether there is reality in what Dr. Teller said, we have today invited, and he has accepted, Dr. Samuel Cohen, father of the neutron bomb. And we will also talk about the Chinese spying. You're going to hear something, and you're going to be shocked. So get ready for a ride. Now let's listen to what Dr. Teller said. Dr. Teller, before we go into the missile defense shield, can you please explain to this audience how a neutron bomb uh, so-called works? What does it do?
6: I don't think that anything like a neutron bomb exists. I heard that name. I don't know what it is.
0: I think people are imagining things that are not there. That's quite a statement. Uh, so there are scientists, though, who claim that they developed uh, such a weapon and that the Chinese tested them. Are, are you denying uh, that they're, that they're telling the truth? I mean, are you saying that they're not telling the truth? I certainly can't confirm what they say. Okay, we'll let it go with that. Uh, what do you think about Dr. Teller saying, A, there is no such thing as a neutron bomb, which is, surely that can be tested. Well, what I did was I decided to uh, find out from the man who Invented the neutron bomb dr. Cohen and right now without any further introduction. We have Samuel Cohen dr. Cohen. Thank you very much for joining us today well, Thank you for having me now. I read a report in the world Net daily not too long ago that you were quoted extensively by David M. Bresnahan uh, And we learned for example that the Chinese not only apparently stole or were given this this technology, but they tested it seven times Is that true? Uh,
6: according to the cox committee report, Uh, and we have to assume uh, that's as close to the truth as we're going to know, Mm -hmm. because they had all the clearances and all the access to the intelligence agencies back in Washington and so on. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's probably true that the Chinese have tested on the order of a half dozen or so uh, neutron bombs underground.
0: Dr. Cohen, you, you actually developed a neutron bomb, is that correct?
6: I developed the concept. I didn't, you know, screw the thing together. I could barely screw in a light bulb.
0: <laughs> well, I can, I can appreciate that. So you are a theoretical physicist, is that? I was trained that way, yes. Okay. What is a neutron bomb? Well,
6: due respect to Edward Teller, who's an old acquaintance of mine, going on back to World War II, Los Alamos, uh, who doesn't seem to, to know about it, or even have heard about it, you know, to listen to what you played back. Uh, a neutron bomb is the antithesis of the hydrogen bomb that Teller has been called the father of. And instead of laying waste, uh, you know, to practically whole country theoretically, even exterminating the world with long lasting radioactivity and, and so on and so forth. What the neutron bomb is intended to do is to be able to be used in a ground war, and these things go on apace and they always have throughout human history. But to use this weapon in a fashion that lives up to the so called Christian just war principles, which are based on the premise. Wars are to be fought, unfortunately, that the most moral thing to do is to separate the enemy, the aggressor, from the civilian populace, the alleged innocents, so that when all these weapons have been used, uh, the enemy will have been decimated uh, by the neutrons, uh, coming out of the bomb. In the good old days when we were in our uh, Cold War with the Soviet Union, uh, the enemy was the Red Army, so that their, all their tank units uh, would be put out of action. But on the other hand, with respect to the civilians, who in conventional warfare have always been involved uh, with the war itself, and had their cities bombed, shelled into oblivion, and now let me just pause and say we're repeating that right now over in the Balkans. How so? And it bothers
0: me. You, well, I ca- it can't kills me to, how much it bothers me. It kills me to see what we're doing to the civilian population, I'll tell you that. It's, it's heartbreaking. And I've gotten a letter here from a former U.S. Air Force major. You may know him yourself, Richard Fellman, who was rescued by the Serbs. His heart is breaking. To see that, but put that aside, if we will. That's a, oh, we'll do that. Because, it's a very big topic, but Dr. Cohen, here's the important question for you, and there are so many important uh, questions. I, 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 there is a neutron bomb. Uh, there's no question about it. But why would Teller have said the so-called? Was he being um, rhetorically facetious? Uh,
6: before I answer that, sir, uh,
0: let me complete
6: uh, what I was in the process of answering. The neutron bomb. In contrast to the hydrogen bomb, doesn't wipe out, wipe out the world, and I put this in quotes, it tries to save the world, world civilization, by being able to fight a war, and repeat, in accord with Christian just war principles by separating the civilian fabric from the warriors. Unlike NATO's... That's precisely per- what the neutron bomb
0: does. Right. Now,
6: may I go on one step further, sir? Yeah,
0: in, in a moment, but I must say this. Uh, we, we're gonna get off on many different tangents today because you we obviously sure you obviously have so much information. Uh, well, uh, we are gonna have to try and condense it into into, into uh a radio type of interview for this for the sake of the uh, listener.
6: Correct. Look, I'm very familiar with that.
0: All right, fine. Well, so let me ask one word. Yes. Is that the neutron bomb
6: came to the attention of the Vatican and as a result the inventor got a piecemeal from the Pope. Okay, now you go ahead.
0: So who was the inventor?
6: You're speaking to him.
0: Okay, fine.
6: Well, the Pope is... If you'd like to know who
0: the Pope was, it was Paul VI. Yes. Now, I know who the Pope was, and I know who the inventor was, but I want to know if you think that uh, Edward Teller was being rhetorically facetious when he said in a somewhat sarcastic voice, the, I heard of such a device, but I cannot confirm whether it exists. Was he simply saying that uh, he doesn't acknowledge the existence because it would threaten his status as a, as a theoretical physicist?
6: Not as a, not as a theoretical physicist, but as a guy who set out to save his country uh, via the hydrogen bomb. I've known Teller uh, since World War II, and when I came across the neutron bomb concept, Teller was very indifferent to the point of being unfriendly toward me. And We'd known each other for quite a few years. And I remember one day he stopped me. We came upon each other, and he said, "Sam," he says, "this is with respect to the neutron bomb." And Edward is now director of the uh, Livermore Laboratory. Mm-hmm. What we was laboratory? He says, "I can't thank you enough for what you've done, for what my laboratory is, you know, trying to accomplish." And uh, you know, I'm just tremendously appreciative. And then he got this kind of. Typical teller-like smirk on his face, he says, tell me, Sam. He says, what have you done? Now, he knew damn well what I had done. I had put the Livermore Laboratory on the map because that project got the highest priority in the government nuclear weapons program. And it was a big boost to his lab, which he loved dearly because he had founded it. But he was so competitive Mm -hmm with other people mm-hmm. who had ideas mm-hmm. that might turn out to be more popular than his hydrogen bomb idea, mm-hmm. that he was capable of behaving in this infantile fashion.
0: Well, I think you've explained it uh, very completely, and when we come back from this commercial break on the Savage Nation, uh, what I really want to know is, because we, you've confirmed what we suspected, there is a neutron bomb, of course, you are the father of that, I would like you as an expert, one of the great experts in the history of science, to tell us what we have suffered with regard to the, the China spying and what we must do from here. I'll be back in a moment. Monday, May 31, 1999, on the Savage Nation here on KSVO Radio in Occupied San Francisco. This is Michael Savage. We're speaking with Dr. Samuel Cohen, father of the neutron bomb. Dr. Cohen, welcome back. I'm glad that you waited. Uh, you have cleared us up uh, with, re- cleared up, the, the, the uh, statement by Dr. Teller that the so-called neutron bomb, you've confirmed, of course, that it exists. Now the big story, of course, is the Cox report. Dr. Cohen, how bad is it? How badly are we damaged?
6: Well, there are two areas. One is the strategic nuclear area, which involves hydrogen warheads, thermonuclear warheads. And the other one is the battlefield nuclear area, which involves neutron bombs. In the thermonuclear area, I don't think that we've been particularly damaged, despite all the political rhetoric that we have coming out of Washington and out of the media and so on and so forth, because that's a game that nobody's understood, and it's unthinkable to have an exchange, a massive exchange of hydrogen bombs and so on. nations can't take that kind of you know, uh, damage, mm-hmm. uh, and especially our nation. Now, with respect to the neutron bomb, which involves battlefield war, what we have done here with our great connivance in figuring out the geopolitical equation and all that sort of stuff regarding our relationship with China, we have given them the basic design secrets of the neutron bomb. Because they, when we did this, they were theoretically an ally of ours against the Soviet Union. Now, What they have done is they have taken this material, plus whatever material they had at hand, due to their own development, which I would guess was very substantial, and they are putting together a neutron bomb stockpile, mm. which, if ever used against the United States, if some conflict were to occur in East Asia, when we were pitted against the Chinese, we would lose ignominiously. We would lose?
0: Ignominiously. You mean we couldn't retaliate or we wouldn't retaliate?
6: Uh, Probably both. Uh, Morally, I don't think uh, that we would retaliate because we have disposed of all... Of our battlefield nuclear weapons, including the neutron bomb stockpile that President Ro- uh, Roosevelt, President Reagan, uh, built up,
0: we have we have
6: They're all gone.
0: Well, where'd they go?
6: Well, they were just uh, demolished. You know, the uh, valuable components like the plutonium that went in in the bomb. You know, that's been put aside to be used for other purposes. And there's some tritium in there, as a heavy isotope of hydrogen. And that's been put aside to be used, actually, in hydrogen bombs. But the neutron bombs themselves are no longer in existence, along with all other nuclear battlefield weapons.
0: And so... Dr. Cohen, I must, I must ask you to pause. Is this well-known, what you just said?
6: It can be well-known, but it isn't. And the way the media has treated this, in such a cavalier fashion, I find discouraging... To the point of being even a little disgusting.
0: Of well, coming from coming from the important. coming from the father of the neutron bomb, I would say this is uh, this is sort of earth-shattering news. And I can assure you, Doctor Co, and the audience listening to this program, while regional uh, on the radio is international on the internet, this will be picked up worldwide right as soon as you're through. Dr. Cohen, therefore, if the Chinese are developing such neutron weapons for battlefield use, why is this not being reported by the media?
6: Pardon me, they've already developed them. That comes out in the Cox report.
0: Mm-hmm. And they've developed them with our technology, with our know-how?
6: They've developed them uh, partially uh, with our assistance, which was done deliberately uh, some uh, close to 20 years ago or so. Uh, they didn't steal the secrets. We gave them.
0: When you say our we, secrets. when you say we, Doctor, uh, are you capable or willing to tell us who the we are? The United
6: States government, the executive branch of the United States government, made that decision for their own infinitely wise reasons, which in retrospect turned
0: out to be pretty poor. All right, when we come back with the father of the neutron bomb, Dr. Cohen, who, by the way, has a book out, which I'm going to tell you about right now. What is the title? Please tell us that. Well,
6: the the book is going to come out, I believe, in September Uh on the uh, website, Internet, and the title is Shame, Uh, if I recall correctly.
0: uh, Oh, I have it right here, Confessions of the Father of the Neutron Bomb, Shame, By Sam Cohen, and we're going to make sure everybody in the world knows about that, well, Doctor. Thank you very much. No, I absolutely want the world to know what has happened, why it happened. There was no stealing; it was given to the Chinese. Why our troops cannot win any kind of ground war against the Chinese, and what we must do about it, Doctor Cohen. This is absolutely earth-shattering news on the Savage Nation.
1: Michael Savage, a host like no other. Finally, I spoke
0: with a comedy legend named Steve Allen who never used vulgarity and was one of the best comedians in the history of the media. And he talks about language today on television and radio. It's not to be missed. Right now, I guess we have our guest, one of my favorites, Mr. Steve Allen. Is Mr. Allen with us?
7: Yes, how you doing?
0: Steve, I grew up on you, you know. (laughs) Well, get off me. (laughs) You know, I saw a full-page ad that, an organization to put out where you are appalled at i guess what filthy language and filthy images on television is that the primary
7: motivation on television and radio yeah especially in regard to how it will be um, exposed to children uh, if everybody on earth were fifty seven it's none of my business but we got a lot of kids listening to this stuff and seeing it and what would you like done well <laughs> to talk about ideals i'd like everybody to knock it off but the world has never run that way uh, sometimes uh, people have talked to me the last three or four days about the ad and they said, hey, this is pretty heavy, hard-hitting stuff. And uh, I thought back to an old joke that I think goes back to about the turn of the century when there were a lot of country jokes. A farmer has a notoriously stubborn mule, which can't be trained to do anything, does whatever it wants. So a guy comes along and says, I can I can take care of that mule for it. I can fix it. So the farmer says, go ahead. So the guy picks up a club, gives the poor mule a terrible whack over the head. And the farmer says, why'd you do that? And the guy says, well, first you've got to get their attention. Mm-hmm. It's an old line. Now, are you are you
0: suggesting that you whack Hollywood over its head with a stick? Uh, not entire Hollywood,
7: <laughs> but, uh, but in a sense, yeah. Uh, what I've done with the ad, in other words. And by the way, I'm, I'm only the one who signed the ad and, and is glad to send out that message. Uh, it's placed by an organization called the Parents Television Council. Hmm. They came to me after having uh, become aware of my own views on this subject, which are remarkably like their own. Uh, About ten years ago, when the LA Times uh, had heard that I feel this way, and I'm only one of dozens, by the way, in the comedy business who does, they asked me to write a piece for them. So I did. The morning that it was published, I got a phone call at my office from Mort Saul, who's an old friend, but I hadn't seen him in some time. I couldn't get him off the phone. He said, "Thank God somebody finally said this."
0: Oh, Mort Saul's one of my old-time favorites as well. I didn't think he would join you because, you know, in essence, you're taking on the Hollywood establishment. Art. Yeah,
7: well, he's he's a gutsy guy. Um, it would not all of the establishment, but yeah, there's a lot of power here and a lot of uh, commercial power. So I know what I'm doing.
0: But Steve, this this could result in a in a in a boycott of your work and uh, of right. Ma- of Mort's work. You could have the equivalent of McCarthyism. Uh, coming from the other side, if you keep it up.
7: It is. I do intend to keep it up. And you're absolutely right. It it could come to that. But I literally don't care. Uh, first of all, I, I might care if I were <laughs> down to my last $800. <laughs> but I'm living comfortably. And uh, I, when I first got to New York in 1950 to do television for CBS, uh, it came to my attention. You'll, you'll first wonder if this has any relevance, but as soon as you hear it, you'll see why. I noticed that the mafia was basically running New York, and I don't mean that as an exaggeration. Uh, whatever business you're talking about, the garment business, uh, the liquor business, the laundry business, the construction business, they were deciding who ran for Congress, who could be a judge, all of that stuff. And the food was better. <laughs> yeah, though the food
0: was great. Yeah. <laughs> Steve, what, in your opinion, is the most horribly degrading television show? Would you care to tell us the type you're talking about?
7: Uh, sure. Sure. Um one of them is one i haven't seen yet although i'm going to make it my business to do so so i'll speak more knowledgeably. i was with jack carter in a number of comics the other day at the friars meeting friars club meeting and jack just happened to say i have just seen a situation comedy that is so dirty you wouldn't believe it now this is not an altar boy this is not billy graham talking now these are old vaudevillians some of them are not yeah, a lot of them a lot of them go way back to the club stuff and some of them do vulgar material, but in no, there are no children allowed. You make right. the distinction here. So anyway, I said, uh, "What is it?" He said, this is a show called Sex in the City," and I've heard from other people that it's incredibly vulgar. So that would be one example. The Howard Stern show on radio or television would be another example. And I think if if Howard hears what we're saying, he would not only not object. Because he does that deliberately, right? Sometimes you can do a joke, and you're literally surprised if somebody else is offended. What about a Jerry Springer type of show? Well, though Jerry Springer is a different kind of problem, but totally revolting, and about ninety percent of the TV business has turned against him because we're really all a little ashamed that he would drag the whole art form down (laughs) that deep into the sewer. so he's he's <laughs> disgusting but to get back to howard just bring you know, steve i've got
0: to interject for a minute you know as i say i grew up you were you know you were a funny man a talented man you did all sorts of great stuff on saturday nights As i spent many lonely nights alone as a boy growing up thank you with, with your programs but i didn't know that you had such good thoughts behind all that great comedy
7: <laughs> <laughs> well uh, of the 52 books i've written very few of them have anything to do with humor uh, there was a serious book called Explaining China. There's one on the farm labor problem called The Ground is Our Table. Hmm. There's one on white-collar crime and corruption called Rip-Off. And uh, there's a, a pair of books uh, about uh, the Bible, religion, and morality uh, analyzing scripture. So, hmm. yeah, I'm a human being in addition to being a comedian. But uh, I- How many songs have you published, Steve Allen? Uh, well, published probably only about a thousand, but I've written about seventy five hundred. However, we have now left two important points totally dangling in midair. So, if I may, I'll, I'll try to resolve them quickly. First, to go back to the reference about the mafia running New York. Which, right. Indeed, they did. So, my response to that was to do a two hour television documentary about organized crime in New York City. And some people at the time told me they said, "You're crazy. You can get killed doing this, and if not, you can suffer in other ways." It's a long story, which I won't hold up. But to this day, there are some places in the country where I am not bookable because of that program. Mm -hmm. Uh, Fortunately, there are hundreds of others where I am bookable, so there's no practical harm for that. Hmm. But if something has to be said, it has to be said. Mm -hmm. Now, you have a new book and a CD, don't you? Uh, No matter when you ask that question, the answer is always yes. Steve Allen, what happened? When
0: did the floodgates
7: get uh, broken open? That part really started in the 1960s. I was hosting... Two talk show series after I did the Tonight Show, so I saw the changes happening on my own show. People began to say uh, more and more, uh, you know, use, use foul language on a, the talk show. So I had a little comic way to deal with it. I had one of those ding bells, you know, <laughs> ding, mm-hmm. uh, and whenever they would do that, I would playfully hit that as if to say, "Now, now, it's going too far." And then finally, uh, I had to send for a police whistle because some of them wouldn't stop after the first ding or two. But that was all what it started in the early '60s, and then grain of sand at a time. It's gotten worse and worse. And now uh, there's a good question, can we stop it at all? The answer might be no. Mm. The forces may be too great. They they might be, because there's money in it. And the problem, again, is with television, to draw a very quick analogy.
0: But wait, Steve, I've got to interject. Maybe, Maybe there's hope. I'll give you an example. Okay. Howard Stern's show is a bomb. True. Yeah, and he he's as uh, as filthy as they come. He makes a vaudevillean blush. Yeah, he does it strictly for ratings, and yet his ratings are not are not too good. Well, Maybe there's finally been a uh, a Waterloo here.
7: Well, there is a, a counteraction wave. In fact, it's becoming a tidal wave all over the country. I'm a very small part of it, uh, as I've already told you. Martzal feels the same way. So does Bob Newhart and Bill Crosby's very strong on this. He thinks there's much too much vulgarity in show business. He hmm. clean. And there's a long list of comics. We mentioned Jack Carter said Caesar feels the same way uh, a lot of us do. It isn't just Steve Allen against the business by any means. Mm -hmm. Steve Allen
0: is doing a great, great noble thing here. Well, thank you very much for listening to today's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something from it. We have about 400 other episodes available for you to listen to absolutely free. You can go back into our vast library of podcasts and listen to any one of them at any time. And remember this, if you want to listen to my podcast ad-free, sign up for the Savage Premium Membership and get access to ad-free podcasts as well as some premium content from our Savage archives. How do you sign up for those ad-free podcasts? Please visit michaelsavage.com for a link. Again, thank you for your listenership. This is Michael Savage.